Hello, and welcome to the new Art of the Cut podcast, brought to you in partnership with Frame.io. My name is Steve Hallfish. I'm a feature film and documentary editor. For more than seven years, I've been speaking to my colleagues in film, TV, and docs about the art and craft of editing. If you're interested in reading this interview with visual support and clips and trailers, head on over to blog.frame.io, where there's a ton of great expert content for film professionals of all types. Today, we're talking with Adam Goff, ACE, about editing Spike Lee's film, Da Five Bloods. Adam had an impressive run as an assistant editor on two of the Harry Potter films and X-Men First Class, among others. And as an editor, Adam was nominated for a BAFTA and an Ace Eddie for editing Roma, and won an Ace Eddie for Best Editing for American Utopia. A lot of the movie, or all of the movie, is shot in Vietnam, and did you go to Vietnam to, to edit? Uh, yeah, so uh, actually the majority of the shoot was in Thailand, and we were there for uh, 10 weeks. And then there was 10 days in Ho Chi Minh City for Vietnam at the end, so for doing all the stuff kind of around the city, for not doubling up. And the plan for Vietnam, I was only meant to go for one day to watch dailies with Spike, because we had nice cutting rooms set up in Thailand on a on a Nexus and shared storage. And when I turned up in Vietnam to see Spike, he realized that, he liked having me around, so that one day turned into the entire 10 days just with my overnight bag. That's awesome. One of the most unique things about kind of the visual aspect of the thing is a, is a change back and forth between aspect ratios. Can you talk about kind of the evolution of that, and did it ever happen when you weren't planning on it? Did, was it always scripted? Uh, yeah, so that, that idea was in place from the beginning. So I remember Spike kind of explaining that idea and how he wanted to use multiple formats as well. So the Vietnam-based elements in the uh, late 60s, early 70s are it's shot on 16 millimeter. So that was everything which was in one free free. So that was the, the bonus with that. There was leeway to do these animated aspect ratio shifts. Those were never an idea. I remember playing around with those in the cutting room and Spike liked the idea of it. So we tried to incorporate more into the project, but you couldn't always get away with them because the shots may have not been framed that way. The first aspect ratio change in the movie is coming out of the opening montage with the archives, which is going, I use a jump cut where we found this shot of the majestic hotel, which the Bloods are staying in from the period in Vietnam, which is at the end of the war in the, in the seventies, then going into modern times, kind of similar-ish angle. And I actually had the effect build out the archive shot so I could do an aspect ratio change from 133 to 24A. Not all of them are animated, though. Some of them are, are cuts. They're not, because they, they were never framed to be animated, so they didn't always work. But then there's this idea as well of playing around with memory. So it's not so much of a flashback. You know, Paul, the star, the lead of the, the, the Five Bloods, has PTSD. It's kind of playing into this kind of memory with that as well. So they get a little bit quicker and a little bit more jarring and try to kind of off those ideas got it and the other thing that's a big part of the film is it starts out very documentary style with cg and lower thirds kind of and then that's also continued throughout the film was that also scripted those other kind of references into the past the the references weren't scripted in the script for kind of cutting back to the only two moments that were for using archive was the opening montage which just said we're going to use this track and it's going to be a great 
montage to get us in the right mood. <laughs> so that's why I had to start with that. And also for Dr. King's assassination, because it talks about seeing kind of the destruction and the protest going on at home back in America. So those moments were were archived. And then it just evolved as and and it's something that Spike's had as a directing style over his over the last few years. It was present in Black Klansman and I think he's actually been developing further She's Got a Habit series that he's been doing. We're just using cutaways when they're referring to someone because it's completely going into documentary of Spike teaching, trying to kind of give a lesson at the same time. So the lower thirds are there to give you information and to show who these people are. So it's these kind of historical elements are very important to Spike. So that's why it's kind of betrayed more documentary style than dramatic. I just spent the last month working on a civil rights documentary and dealt with a lot of the same stock footage, source footage that you used in in this film. Did you have to track down all that stuff? Were you like just going to YouTube and going, some somebody will figure out the licensing on this later? Or was there a researcher or Spike giving you source material for that montage? We had a, a researcher on Judy that's worked with Spike for a long time. She was fantastic because the, the shoot got pushed back by a week. So I actually had two setup weeks in Thailand at the beginning, I think 10 days. So the first weeks was just kind of organizing all of this, like hours of material that came in. It was kind of just after the Vietnam, the Ken Burns series had just come out. And I remember it being on Netflix. So I use that as research. I remember just watching it and my archivist just saying, any shots you like, let me know. Just give me a time code of the episode. As a friend that worked on the series, we'll track it down. So that kind of turned into my grab bag rather than trying to grab stuff on YouTube. And I actually watched a lot of original CBS documentaries from the time and the Walter Cronkite episodes, like the news nights that he was doing. And that became very useful for the uh, MLK assassination because I could, we could actually see what cities were kind of where the uprising was starting and where the riots were going on that we could pick from. But it's a fascinating universe to be in because this year with um, Child of the Chicago 7 and also Judas and the ba- uh, Black Messiah, there's a lot of similar... <laughs> shots going around like between these three movies i did a movie called war room that starts out with a with the vietnam montage and i remember finding a documentary series on vietnam and just going as long as we can figure out where these people got these shots we'll be okay <laughs> i still find it fascinating with the usage though because like hearts and minds was another great doc that we went back and Spike and I watched that just for kind of research but uh, the shot in the opening montage where the Viet Cong guys shot in the head I'd, I'd only seen that shot to him never falling to the ground I never realized it went on so far and I think it was through the Ken Burns doc where suddenly realizing it's like oh wow there's complete tail ends on some of these gory shots where they've kind of been limited in the story that they're telling you and not showing you the whole graphical damage of war so we started trying to get kind of longer versions of things in as well. We're not holding punches again. It's a history lesson and Spike is telling a story and it's war. And it, you can't kind of put kid, uh, kid gloves on kind of dealing with these kind of subjects. Yeah, exactly. I agree. Can you talk about temp choices and how the music was chosen? Spike has a very, very personal relationship with when it comes to music. So there was no temp until Terence's finished score came in. I didn't, uh, there was even places I wasn't aware we were going to have some. 
So we, we did temp it up when we did our uh, studio screening for Netflix. So we put in some just Terrence scores that he'd done with Spike previously. So a little bit of Do the Right Thing went in and The Miraculous and Anna went in. And then after that screening, we pretty much muted it again. And, and when we turned it over to Terrence as well, there was no temp that went over with it. It was a complete clean slate for him to start with. And I, I quite like that approach. I, I don't, I, when I started editing, I loved temp. I was throwing it everywhere. And, and the more I do, the, the further away I get from it, because I know, you know especially with a, like a spike joint, that tonally is moving around a lot and music can completely set you set you in a mindset for things like that so the longer i can stay away from that the more i can kind of just hone on the rhythm and and especially those tonal flows and even as an ae that was always the job i would love the opportunity to do is you know i would be listening to scores and always had my go-to and had ideas and I think now I'd probably be more of a fish out of water trying to tempt something. So I, I, I know where we want the cues to come in. We, me and Spike have conversations with that very early on. So I do have music tracks in my timelines when working with Spike, but there's just markers on there just with ideas of where we want music to go. So we, we can turn, we can give that as a cue sheet to Terence later on. I think for me now, I could very happily just avoid temp until the end for it coming in. Of course, there's a, there's a moment later on in the show, you can never show it dry to producers for a studio screening. You've got to get some music in, otherwise I'm sure their mind would explode. And I think that's probably something that's just come from working with Alfonso because on Roma, there was no score. It was all source music. So there was no need for that. And music is always, it's a great tool for us to have in our toolbox as editors and it helps you get from a scene like just tr to transition to move between scenes it's the easiest way to transition but by restricting yourself from using temp to make those transitions work on their own i believe they just become stronger when you then can put the music on later on by not having music there's a lot more detail has to go into the environments in my timeline so you still need to have you know nice clean environments and atmospheres because that that almost i'm using that to, to design tone in a way rather than having music there so you have to do more sound work because you don't have some score covering a covering a scene so i find that's always very interesting kind of looking at transitions as well kind of like okay what's the wind going from here to there because for me a cut is a barrier I like the idea that I, I don't do many J cuts or L cuts. That, that's something that could come later in the process of trying to just get the time down of a film. But I, I generally don't do that on a first pass or experiment with that too early. I always try to just use a scene transition as the barrier it is, as a straight cut. And on that cut, the environment changes. So that means the sound changes and everything goes with it. Yeah, I want to let's stick with that idea of tonality because I think that's really important, especially you know to directors for sure, but for editors in in delivering that to a director. Talk to me about the the tone of the film and how music can either put you in a totally different spot or drive you in that same tonal range. Yeah, well, the tone. There was some beautiful comic moments that kind of came out through Terence's score for it, and heavy emotional moments as well with how the themes come together as well. But with that in mind, that that all came as a bonus 
So I feel we we had it in a very strong shape tonally before the music went on. And then that was just a process of just continuing to work on it, which bits weren't coming together. And Spike movies, they're like a roller coaster. They can take very sharp turns very quickly. We can change, the tone will change as quick as a gunshot. A single edit will put us into a different tonal environment and, and pace and rhythm. With that, it was just weekly, we would watch it on a big screen. And that's always great, just sitting back and watching everything in a run, just to kind of getting the flow and just to see where the bumps are and where you're not feeling it. And we also did a few screenings for Vietnam War Vets. So it was important to Spike to make sure that, you know, this is this was the audience he was making the film for. They appreciated everything in it or could give us any advice. And there was a lot of additional tension in the cut that I didn't even realize. So that was that was a very interesting experience from one of those early screenings. And that completely came out of the landmines. So we we know we set the landmines up. You know one's going to go over, like go off later on. But there's a moment where David goes down a hill to go to the toilet, and I the way that we cut that, the way we set that up, there was there was never an idea of tension existing in that scene. Really, because as soon as he goes to the bathroom, starts walking off in the woods, I'm like, he's stepping on a landmine. He's going to step on a landmine. <laughs> it feels like such an obvious thing I missed, like me and Spike <laughs> missed, but when we were in the room and people started gasping, we were just looking at each other in complete shock. <laughs> yeah, I was totally ready for a landmine to go off. Absolutely. To jump totally backwards, how did the two of you meet? You've done a bunch of projects with Spike now. How did that relationship start? Uh, Just a call from my agent one day. Before working with Spike, the last feature I did was Roma. But I hadn't actually worked in about four months. I was waiting for an opportunity to come off the back of Roma once the movie was released. And I was, I just didn't know how it worked. It's first time with an agent. And then one day my agent calls and Spike was on the phone and that was that. His usual editor, uh, Barry Brown, was uh, directing a feature, so he was just in need of an editor. And when Spike makes his mind up, he's pretty adamant on his decisions. So it just came out of nowhere. And I've re- really, really enjoyed kind of our relationship and the collaboration that we've had. And and I'm currently on my third feature project with Spike. And I've done a lot of little short like commercials and shorts with him between that. He keeps himself so busy, which keeps an editor busy. One of the things that I noticed, this was kind of interesting. I'm trying, I was trying to think back to other Spike movies whether I noticed the same thing. Every hug in the movie is a double hug. Yes. Can you talk about that, that choice? And is that a Spike thing? Is that a you thing? It, that, that is a Spike thing. That was, there's a couple of moments that you knew was coming, like the double dolly, which is a, fav, a, a famous kind of director's signature for Spike, which has been around longer than anything. There's other stylistic elements. And then the double cut is something that is... I think kind of being present from the the early 90s in his work. Usually it's just, he just throws it in for fun. And it was a process of us finding the right places for it in Five Bloods. So it started off as kind of an action beat when when people were kind of getting shot or falling down. When, when the helicopter exploded, that was a double cut. And it turned into those. And just through experimenting, I think we just did it. I, I can't even remember how it went because... Like the great thing with Spike like and our collaboration is I feel like I'm in a strong place in his mindset. So I don't always know if it's something I'm doing because I think he'll <laughs> like it or if he's asked me to do it. So that's why my stutter and confusion comes from. But we put it on one on one hug and Spike really liked it. And he was like, we should just do that on this scene. And it just it immediately expanded. So we stripped 
every other double cut out of the film, apart from a couple that we use for kind of PTSD moments with Paul. And then it turned into their connection. So it's all of the hugs. And then there's also a fist bump in the Apocalypse Now bar early on in the film. And the great thing with a double cut, it's such a great cheat for crossing the line. <laughs> you can just throw the camera away to, like around the room. I found it incredibly liberating. It's nothing that I've experimented with in style before, but finding a thematic pulse to kind of use that style, I, I felt quite confident that it kind of worked out. You, you're either into it or you're not. Like in that first meeting when the blood meets together, I think there are five or, or might even be six double cuts just in them all, to, like hugging in the lobby, going around. Some of them are very subtle. There might just be like a cheeky little eight frames where you just see the movement going in on a shoulder because there's a lot of, you know, hugging and, and reminiscing. But there's a lot of double cuts in that scene. Did you worry about color grade at all? Because there's, or is I'm just thinking about the 16 millimeter stuff, or is it just that the 16 millimeter stuff, the way it was shot is its own color grade kind of, it automatically looked different. Or did you try to, in the offline, make it look uh, like the 70s? That came, they, they shot 16 mil reversal. So that came in with that look kind of in place. So that was great. The, the one element we did have with that though was matching the helicopter footage. So when the helicopter, uh, is in the air that's all shot digitally just for the ease of doing visual effects not on 16 millimeter and as soon as that helicopter hits the ground we then go into the 16 mil so it was trying to match everything pre-crash to match the 16 mil which was the only challenge with that tom siegel the dp he is, is quite involved with his onset color so he was always kind of going in with the the colorist that we had out in thailand and, and setting looks like very early on. So it was nothing that we had to worry about. Got it. So you had a nice one light. It, it wasn't one light, <laughs> <laughs> which which uh, became very difficult in VFX when we started having shots come back, which looked nothing like the dailies and had to design a brand new workflow to try and take some of these resolve grades that had been applied back onto it. It was an extra pain for us to deal with during the process. But when you have nice footage and you can screen nice footage, it kind of pays off. I don't want to do too much of a spoiler, but at one point, Paul leaves the group. The group goes on its way one way and Paul goes on his way and his story is intercut with the rest of the group. Can you talk about whether the all those intercuts were scripted the way they were? And if they weren't, when did you go off script and how did you decide, oh, let's go to Paul and let's go back to the group? I think it was about two thirds scripted. So it was it was in a very kind of strong place for kind of how that was designed in the script. So uh, Spike's script is great for editors, by the way. Like it, it makes so much sense on the page that it's it's really, you know, it's not ambiguous in any way. You know kind of what he has in mind. So it's quite easy to build on. And then as soon as we were honing the movie in and tightening up those areas, then it was making more logical sense to kind of, okay, we're away from Paul too much here. We need to bring him in a little bit more. So it just turned into just a game of chess, just kind of moving the places around until we kind of felt like we had like the right moments and weren't missing anyone. Yeah, that's very interesting to think about. What what, are, what were some of the challenges for you on this film? I think my biggest challenge was just how much energy Spike has. So, <laughs> but that also paid out very well. So this was a new relationship. So a director I've never worked with before. I was hired because he loved Roma. When he was talking about films that he was referencing for this, he kept talking about David Lean. And I came in with this idea of, of all right, so long takes, sweeping, we're going to have like nice pauses. 
and it was not what he was after at all. So hmm. Spike comes into the cutting room to watch dailies every day, and I took advantage on the second day to show him a cut I'd already done of the footage, and I'm glad I got that out of the way so early because that's <laughs> one of one of the worst reviews of an edit I've ever had. It was all <laughs> wrong. It's not what he wanted, but that's fine. I'm only I'm only a day in. There's right. time to revert. I can kind of just you know steer the ship from here. It wasn't like it was showing him a cut of the whole film and it going wrong at the beginning. I immediately kind of understood. It's like, oh no no, okay. He has his style. His style is a lot tighter than I'm used to. He he doesn't like the camera to settle. He likes to cut in and out on camera movement. So all of that stuff I was aware of, I can can pick up with that. And then I suddenly realized, oh, okay, now I understand like the Lawrence of Arabia reference. This is the journey inside of Lawrence's mind. This is the journey that Paul is on. So we're talking, we're not talking editing style. We're talking a character journey. So as soon as I understood that, I could kind of click in quite quickly for, for that, but I'm very glad I had the opportunity of reviewing a cut <laughs> early yeah. with Spike just to kind of understand that. Yeah, I did a film that had the same kind of note at the beginning, like when I got hired, it was like, oh, we want, to, we want this to be like Dallas Buyers Club. I'm like, oh, okay, well, I'll make sure I watch that, study it, figure out how the edits go. I knew exactly how to cut like Dallas Buyers Club and cut the first scene like Dallas Buyers Club. Nope. Yeah, not, <laughs> like, not that bit of Dallas Buyers Club. Not, not like that. <laughs> like, oh, okay, let's have a, have a conversation about it. But yeah. it's really interesting that you say that you got that out of the way at the beginning. Yeah, well, what I was saying about Spike of his energy, so he would come in every day to watch dailies, which is great. I love watching dailies for director just if if they can i know a lot of directors can't because they're focusing on the shoot their mind is somewhere some directors just can't get into a cutting room during shoot if you have a director that can then you're lucky as an editor i think you know it puts you ahead of the game you can save some time by kind of working on cuts earlier on so spike would come in and do reviews of all the dailies i would take notes and then i would always show him the previous day's dailies cut the following day and that was great. So we're building this new relationship with a new director. He's understanding me, I'm understanding him. And then on the sixth day, that turned into a review day. So we just come in and, and watch the cut every day. And it was great at the beginning until about four weeks in where this cut is getting to 60 minutes and then it's getting to 90 minutes. And not only am I dealing with dailies and cutting scenes every day, I've also then have a 90 minute cut. I'm addressing notes for the following week. So my workload just every week just increased little by little by little by little. And Spike was always, he was planning on this being a three hour movie. It was designed to be a three hour movie. I know a lot of people complain. Anyone that sees a runtime of a movie and sees it's two and a half hours, they think it's long. It's only long if it feels long. Yeah, no, I agree. I didn't think it was long. That's uh, nice to hear. I, I was always kind of, I think this is a good, if you don't know how long the movie is, I don't think you can kind of guess the length from watching it because yeah. it, uh, it does go like a rocket in places. I think there's just like in people's minds, if you make a movie which is three hours, people go, okay, great, it's three hours, it's epic. But if you make a movie which is two hours 30, 245, I think it's long. Why have they left it that long? <laughs> and all, all we've done is it was designed to be a three-hour movie, and we just kept cutting it until we found its natural length. And that was you know, where, where we ended up with. So that's interesting that you're building basically your editor's cut week by week. Because not everybody does that, right? Have, have you done that before? Did you do that with Roma? On Roma, I was doing that, but I co-edit with Alfonso. That was just me checking footage myself. So that gets thrown out. And then I uh, we start again, day one of post, just going through all the scenes together. I, I've never reviewed with a director. 
week by week before that this was a new process and also like taking notes and continuing to work on scenes as well which was quite intense but it helped with some of the vfx elements as well so for the helicopter by cutting early we knew what plates we needed to do spike was very adamant that you know he traveled halfway around the world to shoot this movie he didn't want to come back to do pickups or or, or any reshoots and we didn't do any pickups or any reshoots on this film when once we left at the end of principal photography it was done and i think spike even came in about four days under as well did you ever have a point where you said i think i need something can we get this picked up or do you think that we need a transition there was one shot <laughs> a single shot which was a close-up of a foot on a landmine that's the the, the one thing and, and some scenes i thought i i I wanted more. I looked at it and I wanted more coverage, but I cut it and Spike was happy. Yeah. So it was fine. Move, move on. No need. Tell me a little bit about changing, kind of changing directions with the director, like the way that you worked with Alfonso and the way you work with Spike. How do you navigate that socially or politically? I see myself as a research-based editor, if that makes sense. So when I go onto any project, I like to read about the setting, the environment. So I, my feeling as an editor is, you know, this is a Vietnam war movie. I'm, I'm watching Vietnam documentaries. I'm reading books on Vietnam. I'm just understanding what was going on because I have a feeling that that informs my process. So, you know, a, a lot of us, when we talk about editing, we talk about these instinctive decisions that we make. So I feel that I'm doing research to assist me with these instinctive decisions. And both Alfonso and Spike are incredibly research-orientated directors. They love all of that. So they have kind of just huge amounts of material that I can dive into and share with them and have discussions with. So that's kind of been the basis of our relationships on those projects, just kind of my style and my interest in that. And then even though they're stylistically incredibly different directors with the grammar that they use to kind of tell their, their their movies they still have the same laser focus to detail as each other so it's just kind of understanding that you know if there's a gunshot sound effect we go in we've got to make sure it's the right gun all of this type of stuff if we were adding birds into a vfx shot we've got to make sure that the birds would be at this location at that time of year and they were the correct birds and we have the corresponding sound effect of it. That's that's all normal to me. You know, even, even though when watching their movies, they're incredibly different. They are almost so similar to work for. I also think of Spike, at least, as a being such a child of the cinema, such a, a student of cinema. Did you guys watch Apocalypse Now? What, you know, I would think. There's there's definitely Apocalypse Now elements. Yeah, well, well when, when we first spoke, he actually gave me kind of a, a watch list. And on that watch list was Cool Hand Luke, Midnight Cowboy. It's nothing to do with the movie. They were just films he loves. <laughs> he just, because he's also, he's um, a lecturer at NYU. So he, he teaches uh, directing. So he, he is a, a professor. So I, he has a, also this element of wanting to teach you about cinema as well and a shared passion for films. So we kind of talk about films a lot. So it doesn't have to even stylistically or narratively have anything to do with the film you're working on. Just just watching films is important and talking about them. Yeah, cool. It's interesting. Cool Hand Luke was on the on the list. 
that se- that seems like more just like I want to make sure you've seen this movie than it has anything to do with this particular one, or did it? I see. I, I think I think when we did, because well, we were just having a FaceTime. I think it was just the Blu-rays which were an arm reach to him. It's like, watch this, watch this. <laughs> there was it started it started off with a certain amount of war movies in there and and, and stuff that he liked, and then it quickly just got out of hand. <laughs> for for younger editors and and even just for me because I've had this experience as well. I love the idea that you were willing to share about that first disastrous edit that you showed him on the first day. <laughs> like that's something that just happens, right? And and you could let that fluster you and throw you and and it would be kind of humiliating, but you just realize I just did what I thought was right and it's I can recover from this. Yeah, I can be honest to a fault sometimes. Or sometimes I make me say too much. That happens to so many people, especially as you said, you thought you had heard this David Lean direction and you think of his movies and you think, oh, I know how these go. And then you try to cut like that and it's not right. No. <laughs> and you just realize it's just like you're just being on the wrong foot sometimes. But, you know, you can you can make mistakes. You know, it's, it was early and it was just a conversation. You're experimenting and... And that's fine. I've always had a little bit of a, an imposter complex as well. I, I've talked to every, <laughs> I've talked to, you know, uh, William Goldenberg, who's won, you know, multiple Oscars, Carol Littleton, who cut E.T. Everybody has that imposter syndrome to some extent. Yeah, I think it's just because we care about what we do. And, and if you lose that, then you're probably going to lose the spark of what makes us good at what we do. So I will, I will use that as a pretend that it's a benefit <laughs> that doesn't and doesn't occasionally give me sleepless nights and stresses me out going back to that early moment with spike and a, a cut going wrong something that we have a great relationship with and it's the same with alfonso as well is experimentation so he would like me to occasionally just show him a, a absolutely oddball idea in the edit and i'm always very happy to do it so with working on roma it's because it's, it's again roma was very early and my career so that's kind of informed a lot of my process alfonso would always like try this idea so i would always do his idea i would always do my idea and i would always just do a third idea which was a combination of the two and usually it was that third idea which was the one that we went with and just by doing experiments it can if it doesn't work or there's something wrong with it it can inspire something and i do love just with Spike, he's happy to see anything, even if it's terrible. He tells me there's no bad ideas, and I promise him I'm going to find one. <laughs> and you just you just keep working away. And I'm, I'm doing a, like a, a seminar in a few weeks. I actually kind of went into the Defy Floods project and was going into some of my my bins. And some of the transition transitional ideas that I came up with are insane <laughs> which i'm very glad he didn't went to i i'm i'm not sure what i was doing at the time where i thought it was a good idea or trying to impress bike or maybe i was uninspired and there's nothing wrong with making mistakes as long as you're creatively trying to do something because all you're learning is okay not that way fine i can i can do it something else you still learn something even if it's something in the in your relationship with the director it's like okay i won't do that that's an important lesson learned <laughs> as long as your director understands that making mistakes is a useful thing. One of the things that you said that that I thought was very interesting was it's very easy to cut a spike script, <laughs> you know, <laughs> that you know where you are. Tell me a little bit about that. What makes it easy to cut because it's so clearly visualized or? It's not necessarily visualized. You, you just know, even in like the dreaded 
dining room table scene. The way that he writes the scripts, you know the POV, which is what we're always searching for. You know what he has in mind. There's a kind of a quite a nice, clear blueprint in what he has in mind. Or the way that I read his scripts, I know how he kind of wants to move around, even if he's shooting plenty of coverage. Okay, we've got to hit this beat and this beat, and he wants to be over there. And and even sometimes he does say about, he does write in about going a little bit wider and going in close. So it's not Ikea instructions. It's not listing the shots and the angles around the room. I just find there's an emotional flow to the script, which is very easy to then transfer visually as an editor. Since I didn't get to interview you for Roma, can I ask you a Roma question, which is how you collaborate with Alfonso? Because I have edited three films with a director that also edits with me. So I know that that is a, it's an unusual thing to have a director who's pushing the buttons as well, working on other scenes. Yeah. Well, we just, just day one, scene one, take one, and we just go through everything together. And it's a continued conversation, just going through everything and just w working through the movie I, you know the cut i think it took about 12 weeks until we got to the end and that first cut was probably about 80 percent there it, 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 there wasn't too much to do it's just even when it's coming down to sound effects he's on his laptop i'll be sitting over at the avid and he's going through whatever sound effects libraries and we're trying to find like the correct sound for a turkey that's our afternoon one day or, or there was a, a scene that was cut from the movie where the kids were watching a tv show but it wasn't scripted what the tv show was i remember just spending an entire afternoon we were just going through old like tv listings from the period to kind of find what they would have been watching and getting episodes of those in and and in fact watching full episodes which was a fun way to spend a couple of days the summer working on that film <laughs> but you're both at one system yes he has the luxury of the sofa and I'll just be kind of working away on that. And, and I remember like the scene where uh, Cleo tells Sophia that she's pregnant, because that was something that Alfonso did 62 takes on. And it took two and a half days just to watch all of the dailies to make the select. You know, that's why kind of two heads are better or one, just making those decisions, because Alfonso doesn't give strong notes. In fact, doesn't give any notes to a script supervisor. You can, you can throw all of that out from the beginning. Part of his directing style and he tells me this is he will tell an actor something's going well, if, even if it's not because he's trying to get that performance. And if the script supervisor's writing it down, it's probably a lie. Ignore all of that. We, we work out the best takes in the cutting room. Uh, and so you're working on other projects with Spike now, music projects. Did you say a Talking Heads documentary? Uh, last year, I did a David Byrne concert film that he did, which was a lot of fun. So it was uh, just before the lockdown hit. In fact, before COVID kind of closed down Broadway. It was one of those last productions they managed to get in. But The Five Bloods was pre-COVID. You edited that all? It was, yeah. That was that was a normal post. I think we were the last production to go through Company Free in New York before they closed their doors. We, were, we knew when the lockdown was happening and we were just getting our HDR trim out the way, like our final deliverables just out the door before they closed it. Wow. So you didn't have to worry about any of the craziness that I've talked to some other editors about, about uh, remote workflows, although you're probably doing that now. Uh, I'm, I'm Brooklyn-based, so I'm working with Spike. Remote workflows just wouldn't work for him. It just needs the collaboration. With, you know, we've got the social distance space that we can all do it in his offices. And um, in fact, we finished the end of American Utopia that way when New York went into lockdown in uh April last year so I was just kind of stuck in the apartment sending quick times out to Spike and 
trying to do the best we could that way, which was kind of, you know, I, we all went through that heartbreaking experience last year with stuff that we wanted to see on the big screen and then missing that. Cause I know like the five bloods was going to premiere at Cannes. Spike was the, the president of the jury. We even uh, did a 35 mil breakdown. We were going to make prints of the movie and that was going to go out to theaters. And then all, all of that got taken away. Oh. And then, and there was some very, very early discussion for the um, David Byrne documentary, even getting an IMAX release, you know, just no, like working on a music, a concert film and kind of hearing that just excites you and you know, another opportunity missed. Oh, I'm so sorry to hear that. You talked about the the double dolly thing. Um, is the what scene? Because I, I can't remember the scene that has that double dolly or any scenes that have. The... Oh, it was um, Otis and his daughter at the very end of the film. Yeah, and it's amazing again, like talking about the double cuts. Is it kind of that final hug between Otis and the daughter? That so now we've had this kind of established style. This like the payoff just from that as well was great. Yeah, and and does he have any other? Like every director has their thing about, oh, I don't want to cut on action. I do want to cut on action. I don't like cutting mid-word. Are there any specific things that you can think of, like you needed to learn a style that he liked? There's definitely um, a dialogue-orientated rhythm that he likes. Doesn't like kind of the mid-word, even though that does happen in the film occasionally. He kind of likes to, to be on the act of talking, and then that's kind of then the dance that I have with him to try and pull it back to, <laughs> to try and keep more of a flow in it than rather kind of cutting like that. Movement is more of his thing. He doesn't like kind of camera settling and the, and the unmotivated pan or move. So everything is kind of like finding its its natural style within it. Well, as you you mentioned the the dining room scene, right? The dining room scene table when they first meet their guide. Is that the one you were talking about, or you were talking about the one? Well, there's in the first two reels. There's plenty of around table scenes. We've got the apocalypse now, which is the scene you were talking about where they meet the guide. And then you go Otis that meets his old flame, and they sit down for a meal. And then when they meet the roach, they're sitting around a table. So it was it was kind of trying to constantly find new rhythms and, and movements in those as well. So I wasn't trying to repeat myself in the movements of the scene where you then starting to feel that kind of that repetitive nature slowing you down. Very interesting. Very interesting. Yeah, that you're trying to keep the, the variety to the cutting styles. And the other one that, that must have been very tricky is a scene where they're on a boat and a bunch of vendors come to sell them stuff. And there's kind of a PTSD moment with Paul, right? The camera's confined. The people are confined to that boat. And there's a lot of action and craziness going on. Yeah, that was probably the hardest scene to cut in the film because there was a, a large amount of ad lib in that scene and they were also developing it as they were shooting they first covered the scene off the boat with kind of wides the kind of uh, tracking shots kind of either side of the dock and then the scene developed in a way where those immediately became useless so my coverage as that scene goes on my cut my coverage is consistently narrowing until i think the last 20 seconds i've just got two cameras just because of the performance level and how the scene has developed has just kind of kept me there. So it was very tricky to find a, a path through that and to try and kind of keep it natural. You know, once the PTSD kicks in, 
completely play for that jumping around trying to create a confusion it gets loud we're moving around we kind of the, the chicken man was great as well just kind of getting so much of him you've got eddie with his eight millimeter camera which was he was actually shooting and rolling so that was the real take from the eight mil that was kind of cutting in there was even takes where they were standing in on like, different places different sides of the boat so those takes would fall away as well and it was then just trying to find a route to the destination we knew what the destination was there was always this hero take which was you know, the scene was just working up and 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 delroy lindo was just kind of working up to this performance that went once they hit it it was just like there is nothing else we know that this is how the scene ends now we just have to get there that's an interesting idea as an editor right when you're watching dailies that's one of the things you're you're thinking of is locating deciding on a specific performance at a specific moment and saying all roads lead to this moment and then do you try to deconstruct do you try to back almost back time from that moment or you just know that that's where you're trying to reach by the end it was a little little bit of both on that one like i said i, I struggled with it so when i get stuck i just move on and then i come back to it and then you know by taking a different route by working backwards to it sometimes can solve it and then as soon as i felt happy with it and then it was quite a long scene i think it ended up taking a couple of minutes out of it as well then making these cuts to the scene it wasn't because it was moving camera and it wasn't traditional coverage it wasn't i, I then had to completely reconstruct sections of the edit just to make these these trims work so i'm, I'm having my own ptsd flashbacks just thinking about <laughs> thinking about the bones. you think you've finally built this construct this path to this end performance and good, I'm done. And then they're like, okay, well, now we have to cut out a minute and a half. Yeah, and then it doesn't, it just doesn't go together neatly and you have to find another, a little little detour, a little route around it to kind of get you, everyone in the right places. You mentioned that when you get stuck, you just leave it. I try, I try to. Not, I sometimes work myself up a little bit too much, but I know that by just stepping away and moving on to something else or even a little bit later in the scene, I can come back with like fresh perspective and I normally find that like, even just on, on cuts in general at the end of a day you just need to down tools because coming in with those like, fr like fresh eyes on it in the morning can just help you kind of realize the issues that you've missed I've, I've had moments of half an hour of just lying on a sofa looking at the ceiling just absolutely just don't know what to do and the easiest thing to do is to just do something else and not stress about it and as soon as your mind settles you can kind of find other inspiration so I'm, I'm getting better at moving on so my process is developing with me but working out ways of making it easier for myself yeah i mean you you need to keep moving and sometimes you can't keep moving doing the scene you're doing and you just have to say hey look i can make progress if i go watch dailies for another scene or if i go try to cut another scene but this scene right now is I could just have to set it set it aside. And there's always a scene on a film where you're always going back to. There's something you know you never got it right. There's something that just that never settles with it. Every time you watch a screening, you always have a note for yourself. There's always seems to be one screen, like one scene, <laughs> like the Achilles heel of every editor on every, on every movie. It, there might not be anything wrong with it. It might be absolutely mm -hmm. fine. I even remember like the the moment in Roma for me was just a cut that I absolutely couldn't get right absolutely failed and when i when we went to the premiere and i watched the film it's the first time i don't think i'd watched it in maybe four months and at that point i've been watching it every single day it flew by absolutely was fine no issues at all didn't have an issue with it right because you're in your mind you're stuck on the issues that you think are present and then when you see it with fresh eyes you're like oh there, there's nothing there there's yeah, nothing I, I there don't, i don't understand the issue that i was having 
it's it's fine. <laughs> that is so interesting, and a good reason why you should step aside from a scene and come back to it later. Yeah, it's like it's if, when you want a movie where you kind of get the Christmas break, or you have moments where you can actually leave a project for a week or two weeks. Is always great as an editor just to come back with that fresh perspective. Yeah, and I've talked to a bunch of people that have had that opportunity, like the Mission Impossible, Tom Cruise breaking his ankle on set, and I think that happened with. Han Solo on one of the Star Wars movies that you're like, oh, we're forced to take a six-week break. You know, things happen and and great improvements happen during those times. Yeah. Adam, thank you so much for talking with me today. It was really a pleasure. No, thank you. It was very interesting talking about this film and good luck on the rest of your projects with Spike. No, thank you very much. I've, I've been a listener from since you started the podcast going back to reading the your, your blogs when you've been putting out. So it's a pleasure speaking to you and, and you know, thanks for what you've been doing. Yeah, it's been a long time now. I think the those first ones were both uh, both uh, fellow countrymen of yours, Mark Sanger and uh, and Joe, Joe Walker were the first two. Well, Mark Sanger gave me my first job in the industry. Did he really? Yes, I, Mark Sanger was the person that actually picked the phone up and gave me my first work experience placement. And what was that one? That was a film called Stormbreaker back in 2005. It's just out of university. Um, didn't know how to get into the industry. I didn't live in London, have no connections to it. I had was already at the bottom of my student overdraft in my bank account, and <laughs> I, I knew that I had to get a real job at some point to start paying money, but I was somehow wanted to try and fulfill my dream of working in editorial, becoming an editor, sent out must have over a hundred CVs and just made loads of phone calls. And then one day I turned on the news and saw the producer talking about this movie that was shooting at Pinewood. And I was just like, Oh, that sounds low budget with big ambition. I'm sure they would want someone doing work experience, an extra set of hands. So I got the Pinewood switchboard number. I went onto IMDB and found the first assistant editor's name, Mark Sanger phoned it up, asked to be put through the Stormbreaker production office, confidently went, it's Adam Goff calling for Mark Sanger. They put me through. I pitched it, and he invited me in for a couple of weeks' work experience. After that week finished, I went back and started worrying that, you know, it was great. Well, I've got something on the CV, but I'm going to have to get a real job now. And then my my phone called, and there was this lady called Jane Winkles that was the first on a film called Children of Men. They'd put a crew together very quickly. They needed a PA. She knew Mark. She went down and said, asked, do you know anyone that's available? He gave my name, and that was my first paid job in the industry. That is a great story. And that was Alfonso. And then that went, <laughs> I, can, I can keep going with these degrees of separation of how I've been quite fortunate just sneaking in. Well, uh, you're doing very well for yourself, and it was wonderful talking to you. I really appreciate your time today, and uh, it was wonderful talking to you. Thanks so much. That's it for Out of the Cup this week. Thanks so much for listening. Again, these interviews are also available to read at blog.frame.io, where they're supported with great visual content, images, video clips, and more. Also, it's a great opportunity to check out the other expert content on the blog for filmmakers of all types. Also, check out the book Art of the Cut, Conversations with Film and TV Editors for a topic-driven curated experience. Thanks to my guest, Adam Goth, ACE. Thanks also to Dylan Giovanetto for editing today's podcast using Adobe Audition. Thanks to Frame.io for their support of Art of the Cut and its pledge to keep this content coming your way. 
If this is a podcast that you got something out of, follow me on Twitter and Instagram at at Steve Hullfish. And so you don't miss all the great upcoming interviews on the Art of the Cut podcast, subscribe to this podcast and give it a review, please. And if you have a friend in the film business or who aspires to be in the film business, make sure to tell them about the Art of the Cut podcast and blog.frame.io. Thank you.